Height Zone world. This is Height. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is the writer and musician Tim Cabrera. I have just referred to him as the Cal Ripken of Baltimore showgoers. He's been consistently in the mix for a long time, and he's done some really on-point, insightful writing about Baltimore music. I was real happy to be able to pick his brain about Baltimore history and present and future. So it's going to be tight. This episode is sponsored by The Lineup Room, a recording and mixing studio located in Baltimore, MD. Check them out at lineuproom.com. Let's go. I grew up in southeast Baltimore in a neighborhood uh, called Bayview. It's uh, past Highland Town, past Greek Town. You're almost to the county line, a little neighborhood. It's also known as the 8th through K because the streets are in alphabetical order. So southeast Baltimore. Yeah. And what was it, what was it like at the time? Uh, well, I, was, I grew up there in the 70s into the 80s, and it's interesting to think about. I was listening to your early podcasts and different perspectives on the city, and I always say that I grew up in um, a white neighborhood in Baltimore City, not to be racial immediately, but um, it was a neighborhood that was made up of working class white people that was not integrated even into the 1980s. So mm. I'm living in a majority African-American city, but I'm in a neighborhood that's essentially white. There were some Greek families that lived there and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was a part of the city that remained like that for a time. So it was kind of its own little weird pocket. Uh, it was the kind of neighborhood where my grandparents lived down the street. My great uncle lived across the street. You knew everybody. Yeah. You went to school. You know, you went to school and to church. Um, I grew up Catholic yeah. and from a Catholic background um, up the street. You know, everything was kind of connected really tightly. I remember you saying before you kind of grew up when it was still like metal was like the thing going down. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, what happened with me growing up is my mom's a music teacher. uh, So I grew up in a house where there was a lot of show tunes from her and some classical, which is a good thing to hear. Yeah. Um, My dad loved polka. So I'm kind of coming from that. And and I'm I'm hungry. I want to hear other things. And my babysitters are all wearing jean jackets and listening to heavy metal in the 80s and stuff. Yeah. You know, all that scene. And so that was the first kind of taste of something uh, more extreme that, that kind of caught my ear or got me interested. Mm. At the same time, hip-hop's happening. I think uh, I, I, I say I go back to 88 to people like, ooh, you know. But around 88 was when it kind of blew up in a certain way. Yeah. And so my aunt would come back from uh, East Point Mall and she'd have like cassettes for everybody, and like I'd get like a Run DMC cassette or something. Yeah, you know, she just would like, oh, that's what the kids are listening to, or whatever. Yeah, um, that's nice of her. My mom always was always my music teacher, and in her music class, she would always play a non like a song we brought in, and so I started hearing like hip hop through that because yeah. kids would bring in forty fives of things, and and I was like, oh, what's this other kind of music? Yeah, but it was a big tension because it wasn't cool in the neighborhood to listen to hip hop at that mm. time. But so the kids that would be bringing it in would be kids from other areas. Potentially, yeah. Yeah. And I, maybe I'm referring more to my peer group. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like my friends were not into me being into hip hop. They felt it was a betrayal to, to metal or to something. And there's a racial con- component to it, too. Yeah. Of, you know, that's not your music. Now you could go back to my dad listening, growing up listening to James Brown. I think music is this wonderful connector, you know? Yeah. And so I just like this music. I didn't care what anybody thought. I was like, I'm down. I'm right. into this stuff. I'm going to keep finding out about it. 
Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to keep buying it. And I don't care what you think. That's always been my style. Yeah, yeah, totally. But if you went back to that same neighborhood now, everybody's listening to hip hop. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. so it's funny how it's become kind of a global thing now. Totally, totally. And I guess as far as like metal, would you also, in addition to being down with rap, would you be sort of a metalhead at the time? I feel or? I feel I have a kind of sentimentality to metal. Yeah. And I, I, I still listen to it. Me um too. And I feel like if you put on a certain era of Metallica or whatever, I'm going to be excited about it um, in a way. Yeah. Uh, it's a process, though. There was a point where I was really distancing myself from my upbringing and trying to kind of reinvent myself and kind of a little embarrassed about that because yeah. I uh, there's a point here where I switch schools and start commuting across town to another school in a neighborhood, Arbita's Hailthorpe area. So I'm yeah. living in Southeast and then eventually moved to Dundalk and then I'm going across town and across town they're not listening to metal. They're listening to... I'm getting in with some skater kids and they're listening to rap. So yeah. that all lined up. Yeah. And they're also listening to like punk and all that stuff. So the metal thing I kind of pushed aside a little bit. Yeah, totally. But I always feel really sentimental about it and would be upset if I thought someone was like making fun of people that were into metal. Like, oh, yeah. I get weird about the juggalo thing. How people kind of make fun of them. And it's like, yeah. well, and that's not metal per se, but it's like, you know, that's their thing and that's what they're into. And they kind of remind me of the people I grew up with, you know? Yeah. Oh, So absolutely. I try to be respectful of different subcultures and different things. When was the point where it became okay to like rap? Like for say, say for like these, these indie rock dudes. Well, I feel like if, if you, if, if we go by birth date, I was born in 76. Yeah. I, I got really involved in the underground music scene in 93, uh, which is when after years of kicking around and trying to find this music I heard in my head, I, I saw a band called Universal Order of Armageddon playing in yeah. a basement in Pasadena, Maryland, which is not a hotbed anymore of uh, underground yeah. activity. But I was just searching, and I found this stuff, and I got real into it. And it's true that um, it was very rare that hip-hop would be part of anything like that. Yeah. It might be respected. It might be played in the van on the way to shows. Mm. But you weren't going to see, like, uh, Fugazi do, like, a collaboration with, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of who would have been hot at that time, like... Uh, Mob Deep or something. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. that would be really odd. But right, right. There was this kind of assumption of a boundary there. Yeah. And I feel like the wall started kind of coming down, honestly. And when I really got excited, uh, probably when I saw you and the Wounds crew oh, perform at probably the Talking Head, maybe the Auto Bar. Yeah. Because we're going back and back yeah, and back yeah, yeah. and back. And it was like the doors opening. Like, this is great. There's a crew here. They're rapping on stage. Another band's going to play. I was just excited about that integration. Oh, that, that's awesome. And the connection. Because, cause like, when I heard Easy talking in his, I wasn't at those ciphers when people were getting shot and all that business. Course, I was always a yeah. fan of hip-hop from afar. Right. You know, I was never rhyming myself. I was just buying it at stores and listening to it and watching Yo! MTV raps yeah. when we moved to the suburbs and all that and just into it in that sense. Right, right. So suddenly, it's, like, all coming together. Right, right. In this way. Yeah, and I, I think I, I would say that most fans of hip-hop back then, regardless of race or what neighborhood you grew up in, whatever, most people were just checking out in their bedrooms. Yeah. Or, and, like, it was, yeah, it was a very small amount of people that were actually like, yeah, we have to go to this the Inner Harbor and, like, you know what I mean? Like, see this center of, you, you know what I'm saying? No, like, no, I do, I do. Yeah. 
And I had friends that were bold and like that that would go see uh, Wu Tang in '93, '94 because yeah. they were into it, and they were not in their neighborhood and not right. You know, they right. they were white, and the people there were majority African American. Yeah, and they kind of had to pass some tests to be. They asked them a lot of questions. You know, like what do you know about Wu Tang Clan? And they had to like know things about yeah. Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> and then okay, fine, sure, you can hang out, whatever. It's yeah, all good. yeah, yeah, totally. But um, I can't speak on on that experience. So right, right. it was so exciting. Uh, with the movement that I feel that you're a part of and have been a part of to see that happening in the in, in this other world, if you will. The under, I call it the underground, but yeah. you call it the indie rock, you call it whatever. Yeah, yeah. And to see those things kind of colliding. Yeah. And that's always yeah. good. Yeah, totally. So when you say, you know, so I guess Universal Order of Armageddon was like your entry point with this underground music, right? I think so. Yeah. It was the music that I heard in my head. This kind of—it's what a, a genre now called chaotic hardcore. It was like they would rip a hole in the space-time continuum in the middle. Like I'm seeing like a ska band and a band that kind of sounds like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. And then they would come on twenty minutes, world one crazy, bam, flash, whoa, what just happened? Yeah. And it was just like a lightning bolt to me. Like struck me, you know, uh, what is this? Who are these people? Where? And I just started to like, and they would tour and come back and talk about other scenes in other places. And I went to high school with their bass player, Anthony Malott. So that's kind of important, like, connection. Yeah. That, like, I'm in high school with this dude who keeps handing me flyers. And then I'm like, oh, I'll come near show. And then finally I went. I was like, whoa. You know, that yeah, was, I'm yeah. down. Where, what's going on? Where is this happening? Yeah. I want to go there. But then the van, I'm going with them to see shows and do things. And they're not listening to that music. They're listening to... Uh, can and Faust and Prague stuff and all kinds of different things. Yeah. And that's turning me on too. Yeah. So it's like you're in with a community and um, the community is a really just interesting collection of people. Yeah. One thing I wanted to know about the scene back then is do you, do you think it would be true that it was maybe less about Baltimore City? Like, like it seems like it was more like People from Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Annapolis, wherever. Is that right, you think? I would, like, absol- I would agree absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I hate, I don't hate to say it because I just represent Baltimore. I'm a native. I've, I've lived there or very near there my whole life. I'd like yeah. to be there my whole life. But yes, I was driving to go see, sh- go see shows all in the surrounding counties. Uh, Annapolis had a really kind of hive of activity for a while. Yeah. Um, and when bands would play, they wouldn't announce they were from Baltimore. And in fact, their shows in Baltimore were very infrequent. Yeah. I was less likely to go to a show in Baltimore when I first got into the scene city proper yeah. than later. Yeah. Like now, sheesh, I mean, I'm going to a show tonight, you know, down right. the street. But back then, it was really spread out. Yeah. It was more suburban. It was more, and let's get into D.C. Can we get into D.C.? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> Because DC had such a tremendous scene in the 1990s with yeah. Fagazi, I keep mentioning as an easy reference, but I was going to see all these different groups coming out of there, and uh, the band I mentioned uh, was friends with those people, and uh, they were signed to Kill Rock Stars, which has kind of cross. There's a connection between Olympia and uh, DC. Yeah. So I was going to DC all the time for shows. Yeah. I would drive as far as Richmond to go see shows. Yeah. Um, and DC kind of cast a long shadow in Baltimore had bands like Lungfish and Candy Machine and a few others I could name that were kind of getting attention nationally. Yeah. But really, everybody was paying attention to D.C. 
Yeah, and they and those bands, I don't know about Candy Machine, but Lungfish was kind of like supported by the like this. They they were a Discord band, right? Yeah, they were. Yeah. Um, and I I don't want to speak too much on a band that I'm not. I was not a member of or anything. Yeah, although I'm a huge fan and saw them many many times. Um, but there was there was a distinction. Like Lungfish is the only band from Baltimore to be signed to DC, which is right. a label, or signed to Discord, excuse me, yeah. which is a label based out of DC that only signs bands from DC. Like yeah. they are somehow special. Yeah, to be yeah. from Baltimore in such a thorough way and still be signed to Discord. Yeah. Do you think it would be accurate to say that the shows were like there was not even really touring bands a lot of the time, like compared to the way it is now? Um, that's a that's a good question, and I think that I would tend to go to those basement shows. And I mentioned the ska band and the band that sounds yeah. like whatever. Those were often all bands from the same scene or the same place. There's no touring band yeah. involved. Yeah. It would be really exciting when a band like uh, Unwound would come through town and play with Universal Order in that same basement. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But but really, it was it tended to be that was what was going on. Um, I do think though that there was almost a distinction between those kind of shows happening in the county that I really enjoyed. I'd go to and blown away. I mean, Mike Apicella just published something I wrote. Yeah. I didn't realize I was documenting something no one else was documenting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those crazy multi-instrument, all that all that craziness um, and wildness and real fun was different than if you went to see that touring band. Because you might see your friend's band open up for that touring band, mm -hmm. but the energy was different. You know, it's like they, they got this lucky break to, to open up for this touring band. You know, and then wow, like, At like a club they're playing with magnetic yeah. fields or right, right. whatever. You know, like it's different than the energy that would be at that other show at the small intestine or yeah, or a place like that. Yeah. How did you first get involved with these bands, like playing in bands? Oh well, um, I saw uh, uh, Mike Apicella uh, and his group within open up probably for UOA in one of those basement shows or somewhere in there. And they were this just extreme, uh, crazy, borderline performance art, confrontational band. And I went up to Mike after and said, if you ever need anyone to join this band, let me know. Hi, I'm Tim. I like my meeting him. Yeah. And he laughed. He's like, oh, somebody else is making fun of us. Somebody <laughs> else is, you know, because they, they got so much flack for yeah. doing the kind of extreme music that they did. But I was serious. I really like what they did. Yeah. So time passes. And I'd been probably in like a band in high school that did a few Nirvana covers and things, but really never really involved in the scene. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm figuring out what I'm doing. I'm not trying to discount that time. It's important. But so they're auditioning singers for this group within and, and I could scream like a wounded animal. Yeah. I was really good at it. And they're like, you're the one. You got the job. And so from that, I'm in this band uh, that, that's kind of ending. And then uh, I meet through that band uh, a woman named Lisa Steris. And we start going out, and then we decide to start a band. So before you know it, I'm, I'm in a band. I'm making music. I'm playing shows. I'm doing the whole thing. Another band with Lisa? Yeah, another band oh. with Lisa. So it starts with Within, Yeah, that one group, and the end of that. And then Lisa and I meet, uh, or Lisa knew a guy named Eli Jones, who you may have also yeah. known personally. Mm -hmm. And Eli is like, I'll play drums for you. And so before you know it, we're a three-piece new band. Yeah. And that was a band called The Unheard Ones. Okay. So it's like 96, 97. Yeah. And and where are you mostly doing like these like house shows and like or where are you guys mostly playing? Uh, definitely a lot of house shows. Um, anything that we can get 
uh, anywhere that'll have us. And then there was also a club at the time called Memory Lane that we got in with, so we would yeah. play there too. Um, we wound up opening up for groups like uh, the Crown Hate Ruin, uh, bands that you'd re- if you might remember if you were from that scene, like yeah. stuff that was like, ooh, you played with them. Yeah. Uh, and then we broke up. <laughs> Not to fast forward to the story. Oh, okay. But we were, we were together for about a year and change. Yeah. Maybe two years, I think. I don't think I've ever met her, but I stumbled upon her website that's similar to Mike's website, kind of. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm talking about? The Unheard about? Ones website, I think she called it, or something else? I think that might have been what it's called. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was like a documentation. It was like fly- old flyers and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you, did you feel like, you know, because I love uh, the Towson Glen Arm Freakouts mm-hmm. site. Like, did you feel like looking back, like, like, were you aware that it was like, or did you guys think of it as like a separate scene? Well, I was a little older when I stumbled into it, okay. uh, which back then makes a, a, a gulf of difference, that year, a difference between a freshman or a sophomore or a junior in high school. Yeah. Uh, I was older. I was probably college-aged when I really found out about that scene, maybe a little bit of end of high school. Yeah. And I assumed that there were scenes like this happening all over the country in the wake of kind of the Nirvana explosion yeah they seemed really influenced and inspired by beck who was pretty big at that time too yeah. and i'm sure mike has done an amazing job on that site and other places of breaking down influences and talking about yeah the whole thing but i was just assumed that this was happening all over the country and the more i meet people the more i realize no right. this wasn't happening all over right, the country right, right. this wasn't just what happened and everybody's seen after a certain wave of american popular stuff yeah this was unique to Towson Glenarm. Yeah. And if you look at it too as a kind of inspiration or what I would call an antecedent to things happening later, I think that they're they're connected. I think that 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 energy translates into things happening later. Yeah. And that still that energy is still influencing you and I perhaps now in 2014. I totally agree. I I have this memory of um like starting to be friends with Mike Apicella and and Walker, and then from that being friends with like uh, like Anna Messing, Laura Webster, and then this one day where Laura and Anna met Ryan Kidwell mm-hmm. for the first time. Yeah, at, at Towson Diner actually. <laughs> of course, it was like, of course. It was like an explosion. Of, they were like so excited. They're like. They're like, we met all these other people that are into like this and this and this. You know, you know what I mean? And and it definitely had that feeling of like it all stems from the same excitement or something. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And like, and it was really uh fun and exciting to meet those uh them and to then have them like my band. And I remember Ryan being too young to get into the Unheard Ones shows. Mm. That I was like, I can't get any like on the street, like can't get into the show. Yeah. And I'm like, oh <laughs> yeah. man, I'm sorry, that's terrible. We'll play like we'll play something all ages, like you know. And everyone, it was my first experience too of being involved in a creative community where there was so much back and forth, where you're kind of inspiring each other and energizing each other and forming something a little bit larger than yourself. Yeah. Um, and that's something I still try to always be involved with and to find now. Right. Still. Right. Very important to me. You know, so so there was that that realm. Was there like a more like adult realm or something? Was there was there like a more like 
you know, an underground that was more like older people too? Or yes. Not really? Um, I think that there was a little bit, it's, 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 I see it now as cyclical. It's like the youngsters come up and then the established folks are like, who are these kids? Like, what are they doing? I don't understand what's going on. Yeah. Like, so there was already stuff happening in Baltimore that I would catch here and there. Um, and I also try to be respectful of in the sense that I, I, I didn't, I wasn't hugely around a band like Liquor Bike, for example, but they were touring, they were doing stuff, they were making right, waves. Right. Uh, you know, you get into all these different scenes, you yeah. know, and I have mine that was, was what I got into. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, there are all these things happening in Baltimore and there tended to be that whole divide of 18. You can't get into a bar unless you're 18. Yeah. Um, and then you, some bars you couldn't get in if, unless you were over 21. Yeah. And so the young kids kind of made their own situation. They made their own venues. They, they did it themselves and eventually started going to their shows because they got older. Yeah. You know, um, but there's always going to be a tension between the established weirdos and the rising weirdos. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's true. It's true. I saw that happen very much with um, Wham City. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because I, I remember people just feeling blindsided by Wham City. Yeah. And, of course, me living down the street and being friendly and also it making sense to me almost immediately uh, was different a different reaction than other people who were yeah. like, who are these? What's going on? Are they on the cover of this? They're doing this. You know? And then you get into the attention and the success. And, yeah. And when that happens, there are other people that feel like, well, how come that light's not shining on me? Yeah. You know? It's kind of like a bad way of thinking because it assumes that it just would have been shining on you anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, but, there's, I think with any, I'm, di I'm different. Like, I, I took a different path. I stopped being in bands after a time. I'm a teacher. Uh, I think that I never had that, that hunger that others have to be in the spotlight. Yeah. It's kind of happened to me accidentally. Like, I just kept standing around at shows for 20 years, and suddenly it's like, oh, you were standing around at shows for 20 years. Yeah. What did you see? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, other people, it's like, I need to be, I need to, and then the next level. And before the whole label system collapsed, there was also an idea that somebody could see you at a show, and you get signed to this record deal, and you'd right. make all this money, and, you're, you know, you'd, it's, it's just it's this dream thing. Yeah. And I think that it's really pretty much a grind to be a musician not to be not to say like it's all bad but that there's a lot of hard work involved yeah yeah and that to shine takes that grind first right right and it totally. doesn't necessarily pay off yeah with yeah. the shine yeah definitely yeah i get i guess i'm just saying like say like with wham city like you know i i i do think that one of the one of the many things that they added to Baltimore was motivation, uh, particularly with Dan. I feel like he was able to look at what was going on and be like, "Oh, I see a cool opportunity where someone that grew up here wouldn't." You know, oh, it's true. You have people coming from the outside that need a place to live that's affordable. That and they've heard good things about Baltimore. I yeah. love. I wrote, I think I did a thing with uh, Dan Deacon for YPR, and this didn't make the tapes, but we had a long conversation, and he was talking about the or oxes. I always say the, but oxes. Yeah. And he's at purchase. He sees oxes play. They are off the wall. They're running around the room. They're doing this wild stuff. They're totally breaking down all these walls. Yeah. And Dan assumes this is what all bands from Baltimore are like. Right. 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 You know what I mean? Like yeah. this is what it's like there. It's crazy, and that yeah. gives him this great impression. Of our, of our, when I say our, because you're, I think, a Baltimorean also, or yeah. a native. 
um, of the city. And so, hey, where are we going to move if we're not going to move to New York? How about Baltimore? Yeah. And then they set up shop, and, you know, I'm really happy that they came, and I was excited about that energy from the beginning. And he saw things, like you said, and, and kind of led to people, like bands that were touring were like, yeah, we used to go out on the road, and it's like, oh, you're from Baltimore. And then after yeah. all that happens, like, oh, you're from Baltimore? I know. Like, all of a sudden, the, the, the whole conception of the city changed, and I really yeah. thank him and those that toured and did that, not just him, but the whole thing yeah. for kind of changing the cultural life of the city. Yeah. I mean, that's a really amazing thing. Yeah. Was, was there a point where you kind of got fed up with Baltimore music? I think I remember you saying that in, in your Zodiac lecture oh yeah absolutely well you when you're going through it and it means so much to you and then bands start breaking up or your band breaks up or you break up with your girlfriend uh you you think it's over you you think okay this was this one period of my life and now it's time to go do this other thing transitions happen yeah uh i started teaching and that's a very all-consuming kind of a job and there was this you're an adult now um i'm from a working class background and there was this kind of drumbeat of you need to like get your life together. You need to do the proper things. You need to pay your bills. You need to have health insurance, like things that an artist is often concerns an artist might be putting aside to kind of pursue that dream. So I'm like, well, that's it. You know, like I'm just gonna, you know, work and come home and watch TV. But I think that, and so you you just, you think it's over. Uh, But around that time, I still had friends and connections and things started happening. And I just, it's like uh, The Godfather 3, not a very good movie, but he, it keeps pulling me back in and pulling <laughs> yeah, me back. Yeah. Right, it's become like a famous quote. I just couldn't stay away. Yeah. Um, I'm, 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 there's a place, where's a small intestine place? What's going on down there? Yeah. You know, like, who's playing there? And then before you know it, I'm going to shows again and hanging out. Um, and then before you know it, I'm living with two members of the Charm City Suicides. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm back in the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and I realize it's cyclical, that that it's never over. Yeah. When you grow up, you're told, oh, you missed it. You missed punk. You missed the early days of hip-hop. You missed... And to me, it's like, no, it's happening right now. Yeah. Like, it's always happening right now. There's an amazing band playing tonight somewhere in Baltimore. I yeah. have faith in that. Yeah. It's you know? absolutely true. So... It's kind of, I saw the cycle once yeah. I got back into it. And is that when you kicked off Legendary Champion? That is, yeah. That I started, I, um, I'm kicking back around in the scene. My other band had been over for a while. And uh, I was, I can't remember if I'm living with Gary Barrett at that point or not. But we decide to start working on music together. And we get our friend Chris James involved. And before you know it, we're a three-piece. And we're playing out. In shows in Baltimore and underground yeah. venues and other other places. At that point, of course, the Auto Bar had been kind of established as like a small club where weird stuff could yeah. happen. So we played there quite a bit. I, I sort of missed Legendary Champions. I'm embarrassed to say because it was kind of like it was kind of like a depressed year. I, I remember like always. <laughs> I remember like always seeing the name in city paper and being like. Hmm. And then <laughs> not going. I, I'm sorry. I just imagine height, like home, sad, like legendary champions. You know, I just like that moment of connection between the two of us. It's like special to me or something. But anyway. But like, but like, what was the um, 
Like, what was the thesis of the band? Well, I um, had been working on a band with uh, my friend Lisa Fritch, and uh, we played drum. We had a drummer, Ben O'Connell, and then Chris Cody also was involved. The band was called Labor, but it was truly a labor. It never got really to the point of playing. Mm. But during that time, I, I switched from guitar and the and unheard ones, excuse me. I played guitar and sang, and now I was playing bass. Yeah. So Gary's music really attracted me, interested me. He had done a solo tape. I thought it was great. Hey, let's collaborate. Um, and I and I'll play bass. And he's like, Tim can't play bass. I don't. He plays good. And then like I played bass and I could do it, you know, because yeah. I had a couple like a year of messing around. Um, and it all kind of clicked and fell into place. And then before you know it, we were kind of doing what. It's funny how instinctive it is and how unconscious it is. Uh, we're playing shows with bands before they were much larger, like of Montreal, Liars, uh, bands and they come through town, our friend, good friends in Love Life, um, uh, other friends of mine, and we're just playing all the time Yeah, in Baltimore. Uh, we're playing sometimes with Charm City Suicides, of course, because I live with them, and it's just back to it. Let's make bands, be in a scene, have it all interact, have it all you know work out. Yeah. And uh, so I'm back in the game again. And that's, yeah, okay, so that would be like Old Auto Bar, Small Intestine. I don't think we ever, I think we missed the Small Intestine by by a little bit. Oh, okay. But we would play, um, we played a spot called Pion's Rugs, which is not there anymore. Um, I used to always see those flyers, but I never I never made it to a show there. I don't think. Yeah, it was a nice underground venue, really big space. Um, I think it's now advertised as like it, an event hall. It might be being used as an event hall on yeah. Howard Street. Um, and those we could spend an hour easily just trying to remember every spot like that. Yeah, yeah. But that was definitely our mo. You know, was to play and uh, do our do our thing. Yeah, and that, and did that just kind of naturally end or or had? Well, I think I was I was. It's uh, someone you might remember, Mark O'Donnell. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Started calling me the ultimate human because nice. I, <laughs> I would teach, go home, sleep for four hours, wake up, get up again, go play a show, load out at three o'clock in the morning, sleep for four hours, teach. It was crazy. Yeah, it was unsustainable. Yeah. Um. And but I was so dedicated to both teaching and to being in bands that I just kind of kept it up. Then. I had to go back to grad school in order to keep my teaching certificate. And at that point, I said to Gary, Gary, I just can't. This is not sustainable. Yeah. Uh, so at that point, the band came to an end. Chris also, I think, was at a point where he was uh, playing drums but really did want to do other things. Yeah. Uh, so that also is like the two of us both were ready to quit. And Gary, of course, is made of steel. So he was just going to keep going. Yeah. And so, of course, that mutates into his other groups and his other projects. Yeah. Which I guess from there, it would be, would it be Gary B in the notions? Eventually Gary B in the notions. Yeah. But there's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff going on in there, too. Man, I, I, I've always wanted to kind of catch up on some of his stuff. It's always something I mean to do because it, it's so awesome to me that he's been like steadily grinding for so long. He has a tremendous work ethic, and he's also a really great songwriter. Um, and uh, working with him was a real uh, pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a different thing. I'm not used to that. And the other band, it was a little wilder, a little more post-punk, and this was like a little more classically. Like yeah. Gary wrote songs about girls. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and wrote them very well. <laughs> so was that was that like your last full-on band? 
Uh, there's yeah, so there's some solo stuff and there's some other things going on in there, but it's it's kind of winding down and it's important to go back to that theme of cycles and transitions and yeah. stuff that I, I was still going to shows and involved, but it just seemed like my time as a in, as a musician playing in bands was coming to an end. And then how am I going to continue to be a part of this whole reality? Yeah. And I went back to my journalism stuff. I went to college and wrote for the school paper, the tower light and was at one point was an aspiring music journalist and started to think, well, I could turn this energy into something else. Yeah. And I'm not, and be a civilian because it's weird if you're writing a review and you're also playing that show with the band that you're right, reviewing. You know right. what I'm saying? It was like kind of a good spot yeah. to be in to like start over and to uh, change my game up. Yeah. What was your first like stab at, at doing it as more of a full on thing? Well, um, I think that it really starts with a website called Beatbots. Yeah. Um, and I had applied you had to kind of apply to be a collective member and uh i really wanted to write something about a record by a group that lexi mount was in called the crazy dreams band and i was like i really i don't know it was sort of a motivator thing and um i'd had some health issues and i i kind of came out of that and was like i really need to get this writing stuff happening yeah real intense about that yeah so i was like all right this is it i'm gonna do it and you know get out of my way and Beatbots was a really great place to have a URL, to have your have complete freedom over what you wrote. And so I started using that as a place to publish music journalism and other things. Yeah. I always have liked your style of, of like the review that's more of it's more like you're more of like an advocate than like a than a critic. Yes. I guess. That's a worked out philosophy, but yes. What do you mean? Well, I, I think I, I did enough sniper work in college and in zines where I feel like in the age of the internet, if you want to read something negative about anything, just go and you'll find it. Yeah, yeah. So if you have that spot, <clears throat> so to speak, to write and want to say something, you should probably focus on things that you are enthusiastic about. Yeah. So it became a kind of... If I'm going to do this writing, I'm going to review records that I enjoy listening to and that I really want to advocate for. Um, right, right. That I think you should check out, but be respectful. Not like a used car salesman, but just yeah. like, this is what I hear. This is what I like about this record. This is my description. And hopefully my words will galvanize you to listen to the record. That's yeah. my hope. For you to take the time to check it out. Yeah. Some people feel that critics should be there has to be something negative in there. there you, right, can't, right. you can't be a critic unless you're writing negative things. Right. You have some. But as a musician and artist in other capacities, it just seems like um, sidelines. Like critics can be people who uh, never got a chance to, and so they kind of attack. Right, right. My right. least favorite kind of review is, well, if only they would have done this. I know. Or my I friend's know. band sometimes would catch reviews like, well, it's not as long as an album, but not as short as an EP. How is this? This is your basis of your review. <laughs> right, right. Is like that. Right. You know? Right. So it should be you trying to take words and talk about music. And if you're going to take the time to do it, you should be writing about something you like. That's just yeah. my, my frame, you know? It's, it's crazy. I, on the way over here, I was listening to a review on NPR of 
a like Joshua Redman album, mm-hmm. and it was like basically it seemed like not in these exact words, but they sort of gave it like a C plus or a C minus maybe, and it's like it's like why like like they get mailed like. I don't know how many like CDs they probably get mailed a, a week, and it's you know it's like we found this one. It's not very good, like, <laughs> and that's like presented as like news. Or something. Well, I think I think you get into the position I was in with Beatpots, where I was allowed to review whatever I wanted, and if I was working for let's say the City Paper or the Sun, there would be a, a kind of you need to review these records because they're important, popular. There's a reason, and I would not have the freedom that I had at Beatbots. Or then at YPR uh, oh. to to do this. Well, well, what do you think? What is their reason that you know that when, well, when it's like I mean I don't want because you this. get into some you get into like the uh, the journalist has a duty to tell people about things that are happening in the culture, good, bad, and ugly, and a critic therefore should review an album and let them know whether it's good or bad or et cetera. Like how uh, if a film reviewer that you trust tells you stay away from this movie. Oh well, that's nine bucks on the table or whatever. Yeah, you're, uh, I'm going to avoid that movie. Yeah, the the thing again worked out philosophy about music is that unfortunately, unfortunately, everyone can hear everything. So if 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 I'm if that money's that money's not on the table anymore, they're not going to the mall to buy a fifteen dollars CD. Right, right, right. They're probably hearing a free stream of it on NPR yeah. if they're on a certain level, or whatever. Or sadly, they're stealing it from the perspective of someone like yourself who wants to make money off of yeah. their music. But that's kind of its own thing. So yeah. again, like, I'm I'm kind of trying to advocate for this music, and I know you can hear it. I know right. Right. with some searching, you could find a song from it or something. Yeah, that you're going to hear it. So I'm not as worried about that. The whole right. buyer beware thing of criticism, you know, is that sort of what led you is not wanting to fit into that? Is that what sort of led you to step away from criticism? I think what, what it was getting into was the idea that I have the skill set and I will use it if I think it's necessary. So Beatbots was a great opportunity to advocate for a scene that I was really excited about at that time. Yeah. That led to working with YPR, Catherine Gorman, who's tremendous, um, uh, tremendous editor, tremendous person yeah. to work with, heard, read my work, said, do you want to be on YPR Maryland Morning with Sheila Cast? I said, yeah, great. So I'm doing that. And the deal was very much you decide what you want to review, you decide what you want to write, and we'll work with you on editing it and making it better. But I chose all that. I had power. Right. And then I started up grad. It's like the old story with me. I started up grad school again. Uh, and um, the, all that changed. Catherine left. I was working with a new person. And it was kind of harder to... I don't think that person was as comfortable with that agreement that I can just yeah. kind of do my thing. Right, right, right. Because that's not normal. Yeah. And so it just never really kind of came together. And I said, well, let's just end this. Oh, okay. And that's kind of my frame is like, if, if I can't do it the way that I want to do it, then I'm going to end it. Yeah. And that's either crazy of me or just how I roll. Uh, Do you still have plans for this book? I don't know how much you want to get in reveal. No, it's it's fine. It might lead to somebody who wants to talk to me, contacting me. So that's great. Oh Um, yeah. People have always told me you should write a book. And uh, I was like, okay, uh, I I tend to operate that way. Um, and so I've been thinking about how to write a book that's not the story or my story, but a story about the creative community that you and I have been traveling in for yeah. a while um, and how to get into it and tell 
a story about it and what we think is great about it, what we think is interesting about yeah. it. And so I've started this summer interviewing people. So if I've interviewed uh, Lexi Mountain and uh, Kevin O'Mara. Oh, yeah. And uh, just getting that on tape. And then I'm also, of course, going to do research and things and then kind of see the format that's logical for the book. Yeah. Um, and what makes sense to try to tell the story. Yeah. How uh, Do you know how far back it's going to go? Well, I, I feel like uh, I talk about 93 I've been going through my flyers. There's a lot of flyers from 93. I don't want to cut it off there, but I feel like uh, I'm going to get into some antecedents, uh, meaning like Towson Glenarm and Lungfish and other things yeah. that kind of flow into a, a, what I would think of as a flowering, that moment. That moment where Baltimore bands suddenly are popping off on a national level. Yeah. When the name, the Baltimore name is out there in a positive way. I'm assuming that's kind of a the bulk of the book. Yeah. But I also want, don't want it to be a nostalgia piece of like, remember when Baltimore, cause I think it's still popping off. Oh, of course. So yeah. trying to kind of get that in a book where my thesis is there's a community formed here. And what I think of as a, we formed here that has a kind of strength that is unique to this place. It's not about a certain sound like, Oh, a Baltimore band sounds like this because that's not really what's up. Like every yeah. band that we could name that's gotten big Sounds different than yeah. that other band. Um, but that community that's been formed is the strength and the interesting thing. Yeah. In the in the time that you've been in the mix, what do you think were um, big, like, turning points, whether they'll appear in the book or not? Like, like what, what are big, like, turning points for Baltimore music? I'll answer if you can define turning point. You mean good, bad? Ugly, like things, uh, new level, next level. Well, well, let me give you one example that Mike. Oh, sure, please. Gave me. Um, he told me one time that there was at the loft, there was a screeching weasel show. Yeah, I just put um, the flyer up on my Instagram. Yeah. Oh, you re you remember this? I show. wasn't there, but okay. I remember hearing about it. But keep going. I want to hear the story. Okay, you, you, but you <laughs> might know the story. But basically. A dude like spit on the the dude Weasel Walter, mm -hmm. and and then Weasel Walter kind of like verbally berated him till the dude was like crying basically, mm -hmm. and it was kind of like a a kind of division point between like straight up like Mohawk kind of punks. And like more like the people from the Mike Apicella side of things mm -hmm. of like with like the punks being like, that was not cool that they like upset that guy so much. And other people being like, he's right. Things like that. or It could be anything. The opening of a new place, the closing of a place, like, like things that, that you think of as like, oh, everything is different now or some things are different. Um, where it turns too mechanical, um, uh, Ox is tour Europe. That blows everybody away. How is a band from Baltimore touring Europe? Ox is, yeah. does a peel session. Uh, Ox is playing with the, with wire, with the wire, you know, were they wire, wire? There's so many wires. There's the show, wire, there's yeah. the band, but, and that was just examples from them. Uh, 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 Dan Deacon is working on the soundtrack to the new Francis Ford Coppola film, you know? Yeah. 
And I worry it turns into just like success, exposure, that kind of discussion where right. you're just on a different level that way. I think what you're getting into, and forgive me for going through those examples when you oh, already no. gave a different one, is this Baltimore-ness coming out of yeah. what is the spirit of this town. Yeah. Uh, times where uh, the town reacted in a different way than you would think or it's unique to us. And I do yeah. remember the loft era. I do remember the kids when the Mohawks and the spike jackets and me feeling like I thought that punk was about freedom. And it seems like there's a whole bunch of rules here Yeah, uh, of ways I'm supposed to act and conduct myself and everything else. And right. spitting on uh, an, an, a, a band is, is uh, you know, yay. Like that's according to the rules of punk. You're supposed to do that. <laughs> right, that I saw in a movie and Baltimore's like, nah, the people bought nah, because Mike was in that scene. But he was surrounded by these guys in leather jackets, but he was in bands like Advent and Child Size Coffin that would like open up those shows. And it was a totally different thing and way more interesting to me, not to be disrespectful, right. I won't name the bands. The other bands were good, but they weren't, this is different, this is strange. Why is Mike doing that? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> Why right. is this band like this? Um, I'm being challenged and confronted with something new. Yeah. Uh, uh, you can have fun on stage. You can make jokes on stage. You can do this on stage. Like, I feel like Baltimore is always challenging my conception. Yeah. Uh, Double Dagger talks about that in their documentary about being inspired by uh, Ben Vallis yeah. and the bands he was in. You know, I'm at a show. Okay, turning point, I'll tell my little story. Sure. I got so many stories. <laughs> at a show, they say, hey, this band invert's going to play outside. Go outside. I go outside. There's a van. All of a sudden, Ben Vallis burst out of it. There's a guy playing guitar. And all the songs are about skateboarding, and Ben's just running around screaming in his underwear. He's like, takes a trash can, he just throws it on top, this huge metal trash can, throws it on top of himself, and just running around nuts. Yeah. I'm floored, I'm blown away, I'm confused, and I'm excited. That was really fun yeah. and unexpected. Oh, yeah. And I feel like that energy coming out of Baltimore uh, is, is what this book is about, um, and a, about that kind of fun, but that kind of challenge and the kind of uh, community that gets formed where all these people are just doing their own thing in this wonderful way. Yeah. You know, yeah. but still hanging out, still interacting. Yeah. Do you ever, I always wonder, cause you're definitely like this Cal Ripken of like show going, <laughs> you know, like, 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 are there things now? I always wonder like, is there something that could make Tim like, not go to shows anymore. Like, are there, are there oh, things? That's a, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When is he going to stop? He's 38. No, it's not like that. He's going to be 75 years old rolling up. What's going on? No, no. But I, I get, I, yeah, I get grouchy at shows a lot of times and I get annoyed with like, just like a, sh a poorly run show or a show that feels like done in the wrong spirit or something. And like, but I, yeah, obviously I'm still in the mix and mm -hmm. it's like, but I don't always make it, and I, I always wonder, like, are there wh what are the things now that like test your patience? As oh, well, that's 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 a fine that's a fine question. Um, you do become very when you've seen as many shows as I've seen, which it's not like there it's it's countless, but so many. Yeah, uh, things that start to drive you a little, a little pet peeves. Uh, very long setup times for bands. Yeah. Um long times between sets uh so to speak uh long times between songs uh weird things i mean sam McFeeters talks about how he never wants to hear and he's quit music entirely and of course he was in very many famous bands uh he never wants to hear anyone tuning a guitar ever again 
Like mm. it's like it drives him crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, when a band says we have three more, <laughs> when when a band plays a set that's really long. Yeah, and uh, on a multi bill night, let's yeah. say there's like five bands playing that night. So so you're thinking everyone's thinking economically, right? And then one band just kind of plays as long as they feel like it, and and knocks out time for other bands. It just feels discourteous. Yeah. Um, when shows uh, don't start on time, yeah, uh, that becomes a pet peeve, especially at underground shows. I've joked around with Ryan Kidwell about why don't we just start these shows at dawn? It's like it just keeps getting later and later. <laughs> right, right, right. And later. Let's rave. Let's do it rave style. Let's just yeah. like it's dawn. Everybody, let's start the show. Like, wh- what are we waiting for? Why is it midnight at I this know. underground venue on a Tuesday? And nothing's popping off yet. I know. Why? Why do all shows in Baltimore start at ten o'clock? I know. Not. It's not the same everywhere else. I, <laughs> but I now want, I do feel like I'm. I may be complaining a little bit <laughs> about the. You know, going I, off. I went to a show at the Annex recently. The uh, Copycat Annex. Um, nine acts kicked it off at twelve thirty. Ah, you see, I can't even understand that. I, I can't either. It was, it was like, um, you know, like like a DJ that does like Clear Channel and um, yeah, yeah. Like he he did a set that night, and um, I was sitting there talking to him, and he's like, he's like, it's cool. No one has to play too early. Like like no one has to play when there's not anyone here yet. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. And it was just quiet for a minute. He's like. Actually, this kind of sucks. <laughs> He's like, I'm gonna go talk to somebody. Yeah, and that would I would I was always in when I was in bands militant about playing on first. I was always willing to play first. Yeah, I always start on time to the point where people would miss me or miss my group. Right, and it just becomes this kind of pet peeve because if we were in a different situation, if we were in theater, and they say curtains at eight, curtains would be at eight. Yeah, um, with, art opening, with shows, art opening, yeah. same thing. With for whatever reason, with shows, it's just more fluid, especially in the underground, and yeah. that leads to you know issues. But why do I keep doing it? Why do I keep going? How can I keep handling it? Um, because I know that I'm going to get this feeling, or I'm going to have this moment, or I'm going to see something, and it's going to really change my perspective. Yeah, it's going to challenge my perspective, um, and it keeps happening. If it stops happening, I'll stop going to shows. Yeah, yeah. but it's still worth it to go through. All those things that make people of our age grouchy. Yeah. And we're not the same age, but, you well, know, man, that's yeah. still worth it to me. Still important to me. Yeah. I think, and I think I was just as grouchy about those things when I was like 18. <laughs> <laughs> the worst to me is, um, is when you don't know how many songs you have left. Like you'll, you just call out three more and then there's like, five or six more mm-hmm. or, or or like i don't i don't like um is the like like when you yell out to the promoter like hey do we got time for a couple more? oh it, yeah like just plan out how, you know and you know certain, what time you started yeah, just plan yeah. out how long the set is going to yeah. be you know and certain venues are very intense about those set times others are not yeah and you are very good by the way thank you for keeping it moving you'll say it you get in there you do it you're done if I'm going to see a height show, I know you're going to hit it. You're going to hit it. And it's going to be it's going to be right time and done. Oh, and tight. I really appreciate that as a showgoer. Oh, I'm glad to so be thank you. on the right side of it. But um 
it, in your I can opinion. never hear you being like, how much time? That's just, <laughs> you, it's planned, you're ready, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that, and the audience should appreciate that because it shows that you're being conscientious not only of their time, but of the time of the other acts. I yeah. mean, it just to me is like a, is like a conscientious thing. Yeah. It's like not littering or something. It's like trying to keep the place tidy, right, trying to keep right, things right. right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I guess I've just been enough playing in front of no one in a band. And I've also seen enough shows with few people there that it doesn't matter. There's just, I want to play in front of the maximum. I get that. But play, and you never know who's in the room. You never know who's going to be inspired. Yeah. Take the moment that you have and just let it happen. Yeah, do it. And it's a moment. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's you and the sound guy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> or gal. Totally. So what, one thing I wanted to ask is... um. As a teacher, I've always noticed for a long time, you've always like, it seems like you, you kind of like bring these kids kind of into the underground scene. Like, like uh, there's definitely been times where I, I've had shows and I've met kids that I think that they're there because you sent them that way. <laughs> oh, I, it's, it's, I it's a funny wrong. thing. Um, because as a teacher, uh, I'm a teacher and that's one part of my life and I'm also involved in all this stuff. Yeah. And when I meet someone, a young person who, um, seems to be interested in that, we might start talking about music, interested in this, potentially in this stuff. Yeah. And then we start swapping music. Um, and then you find out years later that you gave a student a CD that changed their life. Now, a teenage yeah. boy, I work with all boys, Yeah, might not indicate that to you at all at the time. Right, And then right, you go right. see his band, and you're like, wait a minute, that really did influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would be very concerned if I was pushing any of them towards the stuff. It's more of just a conversation. Yeah. The school I yeah. work at has a philosophy of building enduring personal relationships with the students. It's it's an order of brothers called the Zaverian Brothers. And and I think that through those interactions, I find out this this young man is interested in this sort yeah. of stuff. Um, I always run the Battle of the Bands events at school. I always do things like that. Um, people always make a lot of play out of how I taught two members of uh, the band Dope Body. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, therefore, they, that must be why they're in Dope Body. I think... <laughs> They were on that path, and they I kind of met them in high school and encouraged yeah. their high school band to play and to do all the things I would do for any student. And then it comes back around, and, hey, yeah. I really like your band. You know, yeah. I'm into your band. It's not because I'm your teacher or former yeah. teacher. I really like your band. And, and now they're all, you know, part of part of the scene. So Yeah. Are they—they're they're Catonsville dudes, right? Uh, I think that's— I, I don't know about Andrew, but I think that's true for Zach Utz and Dave Jacober. Okay. Who are the two uh, stu- uh, former students of mine. Yeah. I did not teach Andrew. Okay. Lauman. I guess another aspect to that that we were talking about earlier is the rap club. Ah, the aspect. rap club, yes. So why don't you break that down? Oh, sure. Bit? So it, uh, as someone who's been interested in hip-hop music for a long time and who will talk about it in class and who will talk to students about it, it became clear that I was someone that might be turned to to start a new club at my school called uh, the Spoken Word Poetry Club. Um, and they came to me and said, we want to start this club. I was like, you guys want to start a rap club? And they're like, yeah. But we thought that name wouldn't, we wanted to give it a name that would sound, <laughs> you know, nice. Yeah. It's like, okay. So, so I became the moderator of this group. And it's a really great opportunity to sit down with 
students. There's a lot of rules like uh, no cursing in any of the music we play, no cursing at the performances, uh, uh, and, and all kinds of things of the, that nature to have a real good conversation about hip hop culture with a group of young people who are probably experiencing it and thinking about it in this new way for the first time in high school. Yeah. And it's really been years now of it taking off. And the first step was meeting and just listening to songs, talking about the lyrics and having this great opportunity to uh, find out what young people are listening to, but also turning them onto things that you like. It's like a kind of cross-generational conversation. Yeah. Um, then there were aspiring MCs in the group and we started having ciphers. So now uh, their ciphers have become a big deal. Um, I was mentioning to you earlier, 100 students, 100 and change will show up for a cipher. And then they're there to see their friends perform. But the energy in the room is just just great. you know. Um, and that challenge of, I'm going to get up in front of my friends, I'm going to perform. And the rules are no uh, cursing, of course. And no one's broken that rule in, in two years, maybe two or three years. Like, I can't imagine some of my friends who rhyme having that limitation and being yeah. like, Oh, yeah, I can't curse. They, they handle it. Because uh, are they coming with written rhymes? They're coming typically with written rhymes. So yeah. you have to get elastic in your definition of the cipher. There was definitely more yeah. of a classic conception at first of what we were doing. And then it kind of like elasticized around what the group seemed to want. Yeah. My point was, this is not a battle. Right, right. That was my big distinction. Yeah. Because that's where the cursing starts. That's where the rivalry starts. In the room right now, we're forming a community. The community yeah. of people that love hip-hop at the school. And therefore, blah blah blah. So, um, no, no photography, no taping, and that's because oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah, because I, I it it sets it up so that uh, if anything goes wrong, it doesn't go on YouTube, but also yeah. allows the MCs to feel comfortable to know that if they do, that it's not going to be on YouTube or their their friends aren't going to laugh at them. That, yeah. that pressure's off. Yeah. So, um, it's just been a lot of fun and a very invigorating kind of positive thing. Uh, I think for me and for the students involved, when I was at, I'm a graduate of the school, and, and when you're involved in activities like that, it gives you a reason to wake up in the morning yeah. and go to school. Yeah. And that can be a really important thing. Yeah. And I would imagine at that age, if, you know, the the club is the like the one thing they're kind of writing rhymes for, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's like... Wouldn't you say so? Like, well, like it's, it's friendly, competitive. Like, the the rhymes they're writing are often referencing things or the last cipher, or it's. But they they hear each other, yeah. And then this one person particularly just sets the room off in this way, yeah. And they're like, whoa, you know. And then they get inspired, and they come yeah. back next time harder in a different way, and they're kind of trying to bring the same level of energy or whatever that that other person brought, yeah. So it's it's the same thing I'm sure that you've seen in being involved in ciphers and battles and all that stuff, but um, it's the first time these young and these are all men, these are all yeah. students that are male are experiencing that energy and being around it. What have you learned about like the new school through through them? Well, I feel like they're 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 very of the moment. They're very of their generation. It's on YouTube. It's on a remix right then there. Um, when Kendrick Lamar happened, I knew about it before it blew up because they were on, on it. They were listening to his prior records. So then when yeah. Good Kid Mad City came out, it was like, oh, I already know about this. And people were like, who's Kendrick Lamar? I'm like, oh, you, well, you don't go to rap clubs. So I guess, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. you know, we've been talking about Kendrick Lamar for a while. Um, I became aware of the fact that, um, 
oh, I'm trying to think that Nas has transcended. He is, and this might be just obvious, but you think about all the MCs we listened to back in the day mm-hmm. and that a young person who's 15 is still listening to Illmatic. Yeah. Um, that to me is a real achievement and a real interesting yeah. thing about Nas is that he's trans, he's become this kind of epitome to them of, of a kind of classic hip hop. They look at his lyrics, they're inspired by his, by his dexterity. They're inspired by the beats. Like, whoa, Nas is the one coming out of that era that these young men are talking about. Um, things like that, that you just didn't know. Meek Mill, for example, is played in almost every club because he's really good at putting a response out or flipping a beat. Mm. And I feel like when I talk to other people about Meek Mill, they're like, what? I mean, he had that one song, you know, they, there's a kind of current there of, of just what these young men are listening to and paying attention to that's different than the frame frame I'd have otherwise. Yeah. Uh, I play them public enemy. It doesn't make any sense to them. They're just the production, the. They'll listen to it and they're respectful. They're very respectful of, yeah. of old man Cabrera and, and what he's into. And they tell him about why, but they just, it doesn't hit him the way it hit mm. me back in 88 yeah. um, or 89 or whenever, whatever record we're talking about. Uh, Wu-Tang uh, fading out, but then it'll come back because like, let's say Drake will put out a song called Wu-Tang Forever and they get interested. Yeah. So you get that interest that's like of the moment, but then is it going to transcend into... Like forever, ever, Eminem is is to them just absolute, like yeah. classic. Love them, great, amazing. I think uh, the Odd Future crew kind of showed when they came up and had him as like one of their big deals. Yeah, and now it's just kind of like, Th- yeah, that's that's such an interesting thing because when his first album came out, I was surprised that he was shouted out on both episodes one and two of this podcast as an influence. <laughs> like, I feel like it used to not be okay to to have him as it. Like, when his first album came out, it was, it was like everyone was amazed by the rhymes, but it was kind of like this is a gimmick or something like that. And then it seemed like somewhere along the way, it was like, yeah, he's officially the guy. Yeah, and I remember I was working in high school, not at the school, not now, when, that, when he hit, and... Uh, the students were like, is this okay to like? Yeah. And they kind of looked to the authorities on hip-hop. Right, right, and like, right. yeah, yeah, it's fine. And so from that, like, yay, like everyone <laughs> right, in right, school right. was into Eminem. Um, and it was okay to like. Yeah. Is there anything you've put them on to that, that seems to stick more? Well, the, the one thing I do, I think as, as and this is uh, being careful and being respectful of them. I never, if you ever want to turn off a young person, just be like, you need to listen to this. You need to talk. You yeah. need to check this out. Yeah. Or like, my day. Really. Start that. No one's gonna listen. Yeah. So what I do is when we start the club, when the door opens, when everybody's gathering, I always play instrumental stuff, and then I explain very briefly what we were listening to. Yeah. Um. So I have MF Doom on. I have uh, J Dilla or JD, whatever however you want to, you know. Yeah. I have donuts on or whatever. And that's kind of the background. Yeah. Or some beat thing I picked up of beats or beats that I really like that I'm just kind of playing off of YouTube or whatever, kind of mixing. Yeah. And then I talk about what I played. And sometimes that'll inspire them to rhyme over a beat or whatever. Um, you find out certain beats are just eternal. Shook Ones Part Two, 
is the go-to free uh, go-to for ciphers. Yeah, and I had nothing to do with that. Yeah, <laughs> it was just no, like just this yeah. beat is ill, and yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah, like they just that's grab that. You know, find it on YouTube, play it. Or I'm going to rhyme over it. Yeah. Um, but you do wind up having an influence that way because it turns them on to things. They go home, they Google, they look around, and maybe it resonates. Yeah. But you never, like with anything with that, I never force them or try to push. Yeah. It's just not my style. When I when I was a kid, I think I didn't understand, I didn't understand that you could even really dig back into the past of rap. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I, I definitely had um, older people when I when I was like eighteen is when I met um, the Grand Buffet guys. Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, and also my friend Jordan, that's Grunge's brother, and um, they really put me on to the idea that it's like you don't have to just listen to what you happened to have heard at the time it was out. Like it's all still there, and you you, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You can buy you can buy like a collection of like Cold Crush Brothers stuff or something, and then you just know about it even though you weren't there <laughs> so i feel like it's it's helpful to have like an older person like telling you that e- even subtly in the way that, that you're yeah they ask it. me questions they yeah. they come in with things or things they think i might like or we discuss or whatever or i say this reminds me of a certain thing and i try to always have it be organically out of the teenage now the like moment of right now is the most important thing mm. but there is this history that you can dig into if you want. Yeah. Some come at me and are like, "Oh, you mean like the battle between, uh, you know, LL Cool J and Kumo D?" And you know, like they they have they've done their research. They're like yeah. coming into the club cr- trying to like show me what's up. Yeah, yeah. And my that's response cool. is always, "That's cool. I never, I didn't really think about how that's connected." And yeah. To try to let them, it's never like a top dog thing. Like I'm the top dog. Yeah. It's like we're having a conversation. Of course, yeah. You know, and I'm from here and you're from there, but that doesn't mean we can't talk. Right, right, right. And that's right, just right. huge in every part of my life. Yeah. Hopefully. Really almost the last 2 years of of me touring, I've I've been doing just the old school mm-hmm. stuff from start to finish, and it's like I've actually noticed that it's the very young people that that more get the reference point than people my age <laughs> maybe because they're you know like so used to this like smartphone realm that they can kind of like even if they hear about the show the night before they can like be like oh okay old school set like like they they can like learn stuff so fast you know mm-hmm. what i mean like or a, a different you get into different reference points and i think that people that are pre-internet are less flexible and have a kind of conception like literally when you do studies on the minds of of young people raised with the internet their brains actually are different than my brain um because i was raised before that and so i try to be respectful of their interaction with with culture and their culture of the moment and not try to be critical of it even though it's natural to be like oh you have no attention span you don't pay attention to things the way i do but these are the same young people that can play a video game for 12 hours straight yeah. So they have no attention span. They right, have no right, ability right. to focus. Yeah. I think it's just what what we think is important and what they think is important are sometimes different. Yeah. I would say I think younger people as a general rule are smarter and tighter. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I mean any kind of huge generalization is Well, not to quote to legit. quote you, uh now we talk on computer chips and I can't get used to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. 
when you said that, I was like, I know what he's talking about. Like, I get that feeling sometimes of like things are moving so fast. Yeah. Now, but I, see, now I'm trying to get with it or something. Like, like I just feel like anything that's cool about the old time, you have to like bring it into the new time. You know what I mean? Like, like anything that's cool that I know about let's just put it put it in there with like all the new shit and if and if any of it sticks cool and if not it's okay mm-hmm. do you know what i'm saying i do i think yeah. that they're all kind of interacting with each other uh hopefully yeah and um but i've i've always been fearful of the good old days and always been yeah. fearful of nostalgia kind of and i'm a baltimorean we're naturally nostalgic people yeah we just everything was better before yeah. i feel like if you talk to my my family or you know that's just that you can go off on that for yeah. a while and i remember um but the now is important the future i'm interested in what's going to happen next yeah and what's going to happen next i don't know but i get to go out to shows and i see sometimes what's happening next before other people might see it and it's exciting to be around that energy it makes yeah. you uh think about things differently i don't know i'm just used to it I'm used to like seeing bands in small places and then blowing up and I don't know, having that moment with them. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot about if I was, if I was doing my thing in the good old days, I don't even know if I would have any hope at all. Or, you know what I mean? It's just cause things used to seem, it's, it used to seem so much harder to do anything I, I like, like as far as shows and, Getting any word out there well, about if anything. You, if you get into the historic Baltimore, yes, it was harder. It was different. It was smaller. Yeah, uh, you had to. The grind was different. You had to give flyers. I remember guys rolling around Baltimore with staple guns and hitting up every possible. I'd see them like trying to get people to come out to shows and events. You'd have yeah. to, you know, and there was a physicality to it. Yeah, and then there was still a kind of indifference that you faced if you're really pushing. Uh, I have flyers for shows where that were very small clubs of bands that were eventually much larger, but it took years for that to happen. Yeah. Um, I played a show with of Montreal when they weren't that big of a deal and they were, you know, there were maybe 50 people in the room. Um, I think things blow up differently. I think that there, it is easier to do things in some ways. I've talked to the guy from uh, someone who works at charm city art space about how he needs to step down and let the kids learn how to do this. Because if he sets it all up for them to have these punk shows and do this, and they're not the ones setting it up, they're not going to appreciate the time and the effort that goes into mm. making this culture happen. Yeah. Um, but you worry that you're attaching something that's not necessary because of technology. Like, I used to have to run to the Reptilian record store to buy the 7-inch that was there were only so many copies of. And now, I click a button, there it is. Right. It's on my right. hard drive. And if I say that I'm better, I'm a more worthy person because I used to have to do that. It's kind of like, yeah, people used to also not have cars. <laughs> I don't even know where you're going with that. Yeah. Like I used to, people used to churn their own butter. You don't even understand. I mean, yeah. it's like, what's the line? Yeah. What's, what's the, what's the line with that kind of thinking? I, yeah. I, I was thinking about that last night because I was remembering did you say you were a Metallica fan? Sure. Yeah, point? absolutely. I remember being like on the hunt for this Garage Days. Oh yeah. EP, and I remember my cousin 
taking me to like toad music mm-hmm. in Severna Park. Oh yeah. And, be, oh, yeah. and being like, he's like, Oh, if you're looking for something, these, these guys might have it. And like, it was like this, like, the comic book guy from The Simpsons. Oh, yeah, guy. I remember that guy. <laughs> I have friends that worked for that guy. But anyway, oh, keep okay. going. Keep yeah, going. but he was like, he was like, well, let me tell you the deal with Garage Days. And it was like, it was this weird, like, mystery treasure or something. <laughs> and like, and then like, he was like, he was like, I think your best bet would be to find someone that has a copy of it or something and get it or something. <laughs> and like, my cousin was kind of like, let's cut to the chase. Like, do you have it or something? And then he was like, he was like, yeah, but I don't think you can afford like the kind of prices I'm talking about. Or so. And it's like the value of these like tracks was like so like heightened. I, I guess I was looking for, I don't know if I was even looking for a cassette or a CD or what, but it was like, he was talking about it like it was worth like a thousand dollars or something. And then I was just thinking one track off Garage Days as like a, Napster or like Spotify thing now like what's it worth like point zero 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 one and it's just kind of like sitting with all this other crap on the internet now I kind of think that now might be better in that sense (laughs) you you know what I'm saying well yeah and that's and that's as as an old uh, I've I've I used to go to record stores so much I still have a collection that freaks me out a little bit of of music um, physical objects. Um, in these interviews, one thing I'm really enjoying is rolling at the person with basically their discography in front of them. And they're often like, I don't have a copy of this, you know, like, Oh, how yeah, did you, yeah, yeah. and I just years of just kind of paying attention, going to record stores, buying stuff, picking stuff up, especially local stuff. Yeah. Um, and so there's still is a kind of magic to the object, but you're right in that it's zeros and ones it's online, it's files now. And I'm not going to like, we can have this conversation and laugh and remember, I think it's important that we remember those times and trying to find those records yeah. and going through all that. But you can't really explain it to a younger person because they're kind of like, why would you have gone to a place to buy music in the first place? Right, right. You know right. what I mean? Like, they're like, that's weird. There are places where you could buy music. They're not that advanced yet, but yeah. they're kind of, it's kind of a dying thing. They get all their, all their music is on their phone typically. It's stuff they've downloaded. Um, they're, they, they understand the ethics that they should pay for it. Um, this happens over high school. I watch them decide I'm going to erase everything off my computer or mm. whatever that I didn't take, I didn't pay for because they understand the impact it's having the devaluation. Yeah. And you can see too, with the revival of vinyl that they want an object the, the people that are buying vinyl or the people that remember those records from back in the day. And then the younger people that like want that physical object yeah. comes with the download, but they have the art, they have a physical thing. Yeah. And I've just always had this attachment to those physical things. Yeah, totally. Well, cool, man. I, I, is there anything else you wanted to mention? No, or, hopefully I answered Oh, definitely. your questions. And, uh, you know, I got to reference you a couple times yes. in here and give you a few shout outs, which is what <laughs> it's always nice to do. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Man. Well, thank you. Yes. Thanks again to Tim for an awesome show. See you next week.